As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to episode 191 with my guest Matt Oswalt. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MENTAL at checkout. A better web starts with your website. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Check it out. Go fill out a survey. See how other people filled out surveys. Uh, read a blog by me or a guest blog by somebody. Um, donate to the show. Buy a coffee mug, a t-shirt. Um, or just run through the meadow. Run through the meadow of the website. Take off your sandals. Feel the breeze in your hair. And run through our website's meadow. Uh, before we get to the episode today with uh, with Matt, uh, I want to read you. This is an email I got from a person who calls himself Zingo, and they write: "Listen to your podcast with uh, Aparna. Uh, she was my previous guest, Aparna Nancherla. Uh, I appreciate what you do and listen every week. It's helped me as I've fought crippling anxiety and self doubt. Really, it has." Still, you mentioned today a support group where you met three beautiful people who felt bad about themselves. While I appreciate that some, uh, while I appreciate that, some of us are trolls, bald, bucktoothed, four-eyed, fat-ass trolls. That's fine. I've come to terms with it. I've come to terms with people thinking I'm a creep for doing no more than being. I understand how pretty people can feel bad about themselves, but still, man, I hope they know how envious us uglies are. Thank you for that, Zingo. Um, this is struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself quarter life and, uh, about her depression. 
She writes, uh, one day I realize I haven't done anything fun or spoken to any friends in two months. I freak out, make an effort for a little bit, then it happens again. And a snapshot from her life. I'm at work. I think about maybe going out and doing something, maybe alone, maybe texting a friend. Instead, I go home thinking I'll maybe do some laundry or clean up or do some writing or an art project or read a book or, or, or. And then suddenly it's 1 a.m. and I've been online for hours, most likely high. Nothing has gotten done. I haven't even packed lunch for tomorrow. Then I go to bed, oversleep, get to work late, and repeat. Oh, my God. I bet so many people just felt like a jolt go through themselves like holy shit that is me that would be me if i had a nine to five job uh thank you thank you for sharing that this is uh i love this guy's name for himself he calls himself i done broke my brain and about his love addiction he writes feels like constantly chasing a mirage through the driest desert on earth knowing full well the chase will kill me about his codependency, my significant other talking to another man is like the 9-11 of daily events. And a snapshot from his life, on line one, I had the police telling me to get her to come home, while on line two, I had her telling me she took an overdose and didn't want to die. Second girlfriend with diagnosed borderline personality disorder. Uh, and then this one is from Terry, um, and she writes about her OCD. I probably think about cancer a hundred times a day. I've never been diagnosed with cancer, but I still fight it. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's, that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like here with Matt Oswalt, who, um, what would you be best known for, the uh, pudding? Yeah, pudding okay. is sort of a thing that I do with Eddie Pepitone. Former guest. Oh, really? He's been on here? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, my was lord. Great... It was like a, a 10-hour show or something. <laughs> he seems the kind of guy that could talk a lot on a show like this. Like, he'd be a perfect guest. He was a great guest. <laughs> oh, a great guest. But uh, yeah, pudding is what I'm best known for, I guess. This little web series I did with, with Eddie. Uh, you're originally from the Virginia area? Yeah, I'm from uh, Sterling, Virginia, a little suburb outside of Washington, D.C. I was just back there recently visiting the family, so uh, it's grown up. I get, I get lost when I go around there now because the area has just exploded. Suburbia mm. and tech and mm. all these giant companies. When I was there, it was just cornfields. That's all wow. it was. Yeah. So. Uh, you and I don't really know each other. We met once at, we I did? think it was, yeah, I think it was at Jimmy Dore's, uh, Jimmy Dore was doing a show at the place next to the improv. Oh yeah, space. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was doing with Eddie, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. It was, yeah, that was the old, what was it called? The improv, it was like a space improv next lab. to Improv Lab, yeah, which is yeah. no longer there, but that, oh, yeah. Oh, it's not? No, they, oh. they, it's, it's been replaced by this 
kind of this shishi high-end bar that's part of the improv but it's like it's built up oh i was hoping it was either going to be a, a greedy bank or a pharmacy or a, pharmacy. Which is a, or a oh, starbucks which would seem to be you know the perfect kind the of only uh, thing that yeah. that people are building these days the only thing that lasts and rehabs world, and rehabs <laughs> lots of those yeah um so where would be a, I, one of the reasons why I asked you to to be a guest on the the show was was it your description on Twitter? Do you mention depression on your description on Twitter? Oh well, you know, um, or had self deprecation is sort of my my running theme on my Twitter account. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's all inward uh stuff and i think that's probably what you you noticed and was mm-hmm. like this is the kind of guy that would be mm-hmm. perfect for my podcast let's because, bring that you know, loathing all of his tweets are about nooses and putting his head in the <laughs> oven <laughs> yes, and uh you know it. driving off a, a pier and so yeah, yeah he's a perfect you know, guy for my, my my podcast uh well let's start from the from the beginning um how many kids in your family? And I know your your brother it's and some just people. Me and my brother, my older brother. That's uh, it. That's Patton, it. Patton Oswalt, yes. who uh, yes. uh, a lot of people may may be yeah. familiar with. He was the third lead on King of Queens. Not sure if you guys out there <laughs> watched that show. Very excited for his success. Not sure what he's done done since though. I, I've not really followed his career since then, so I'm not sure. But uh, what what was uh, and it's interesting because you. Uh, you used to play hockey. You were a jock. You're tall. Still a jock. Yeah. 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 Still still play sports. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, rack of all tennis, golf, you know, and I big runner, you know. I find that exercise chases away the blues. There, I think there's two kinds of depressed people. Those who veg out in front of the TV all day and those who need to get out and go for long hikes in, in Griffith Park by themselves, just them and the coyotes. And thank God I'm one of those kind of depressing people, you know? Because yeah. I can't imagine, I know people, I have a lot of writer friends and all writer friends are, you know, depressed. So, Sedentary. And they <laughs> they sit around the house all day watching extreme couponing marathons and eating lots of Hot Pockets. And, and I've never really gone that route. Usually when I feel bad, the worse I feel, the more I exercise. So, wow, you're lucky. I'm, uh, you know, a manic depressive with six pack abs, ladies. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been di- diagnosed with uh, no, I manic depression? Oh, okay. Okay. No. okay, no, it's part of my humor. All right. <laughs> um, what is manic? I don't know who that is. Uh, manic manic depressive would be somebody who has extreme highs and extreme lows. Oh, okay. And there's two. Um, there's bipolar one and bipolar two. It okay. used to be called manic depression, and now it's called bipolar disorder. Oh, okay. Um, and bipolar one is much more intense than bipolar two. Okay. Um, bipolar one are people that tend to have to be. Um, you, you will see hospitalizations in really? in there. Um, I heard somebody to, to say one time: there's two types of bipolar: the kind of bipolar that gets you promoted, and the kind of bipolar that gets you fired. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Do you have any of these? I'm curious. I don't even know anything about I've had, you. I've had what periods you... of mania, but, yeah. but my psychiatrist doesn't believe that uh, that I am bipolar. He thinks I may be, may be near it, but mm. no, he might. You never crossed that line. Yeah. No, uh, the only times I've experienced mania is when I've switched meds, and there will be a brief period, um, sure. sometimes a couple of days, sometimes a couple of, of months 
and um, where I get very compulsive about yeah. about things. Um, but I've never like you know gone two days without sleep. Bipolar one okay. people you'll you'll see when they're in their mania they'll they'll go like on very little sleep. Really and start. I didn't know projects that. that are just insanely they're like complex. writing operas at like two in yes. the morning and yes. like you know <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna rebuild the Louvre in yes. Legos in uh, in <laughs> my basement three you know <laughs> uh, talking nonstop um, uh, very agitated if people disagree with them mm-hmm. um, friend after friend asking are you okay and they begin to think that everybody's just kind of jealous of them because yeah. they're you know, got life by the balls. Wow. And then when that goes away, the crushing, crushing low uh, comes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, my, and, I think my depression is kind of flatlined. It just kind of yeah. blah. I get the blahs, you know. Yeah. And it's, uh, but I get those little mini panic attacks. I get those, but I think those are, I think those sort of go with it though. I'll get like a, they're not a lot, maybe once a week I'll be like, I'll kind of find myself in a moment where I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm unemployed. I'm 43. I, I blah, blah, blah. And I just had this like crushing, like, you know, episode of just heavy breathing. And then it goes away after a couple of minutes, you mm-hmm. know. Are you the uh, older or the younger? The younger. Patton's okay. about two years older than I am. And when, when the anxiety uh, attacks come, uh, what are they about stuff specific or is it just a general anxiety? It's just a, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, I find myself completely aware of the moment. Like I'm, like I just said, I'll suddenly just say to myself, I'm 43 years old. I don't have a girlfriend. I'm not working right now. Uh, in this, this huge crushing, like realization of where, of where I am right now. And I just sort of like think about it for like a few seconds and it like freaks me out. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then it goes away because I realize, you know what? Oh, there's a lot, there's nothing wrong with being 43 and not having a girlfriend or not having the career that you wanted. I mean, 99% of the world is like that. So then it goes away, but they still come every once in a while. Yeah. And you know, my thought is, is you, is you share that is, you're in the moment in a way, but in a way you're also, it, the fear is really about projecting. Because in mm-hmm. that moment, you're okay. You're not hungry. You're not in physical pain. Yeah. It's really fear of the future. You think so? so? Yeah, because if you really break it down, you're, you're, this is just my opinion, but your fear is you're projecting this moment into the future. So you're not really being present. If you were really being present, you would say, how does my body feel right now i have i have food in my belly i have friends it makes sense yeah you know i'm i'm okay i'm breathing I'm, yeah i'm upright and that's what i try to do is i try to keep it in today at, and that's like sometimes that's even future projecting sometimes i just try to keep it right now and when people say hey how you doing uh i say i'm just trying to keep it in today right here right now i'm okay because okay. the future is a fucking dangerous neighborhood terrifying world to even think about sometimes yeah i think especially if we're prone to depression because we extrapolate that and we think i'm gonna have the blues or the blahs forever or this moment of reprieve that i have is going to be short-lived wow and then that's ruined yeah the brain is ingenious at shitting 
the brain will find a way to fuck you up, whether yeah. you want to or not. That's like a it's sprinkler. okay. I say fuck on your podcast, right? I'm not sure oh, yeah. to say fuck yeah, yeah. on the internet. Okay, yeah. okay. Depression is like a sprinkler system of diarrhea a that diarrhea. will just wow. make sure every corner of the lawn is covered. Wasn't that Thirty Seconds to Mars' last album, a sprinkler of <laughs> diarrhea? Wasn't that the album title? I thought I, I could have sworn, and you know, maybe I'm wrong here. But it was I quite an I album. I don't cover. follow the the young people's music that much yeah. anymore, so I could be wrong. But um, um. Yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot. Of, but I, I, I just going back. I just think it's just these moments of realization, and they usually happen around two in the afternoon as I'm, you know, eating a, you know, a, a hot dog bun smothered in grape jelly over my sink, glancing at an <laughs> ITT tech brochure, and like, what the fuck? And then these, these it all hits me, you know. <laughs> and then you're projecting into how your career is actually going to go in ITT tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking, you know, what I could actually. Give the writing thing a just a walk away from it and maybe get into yeah. air, airplane repair or something. I mean, there's oh, nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> a lot of good jobs in that. I don't I've know. occasionally thought about growing weed again for money, but growing I just I, I, I couldn't. I, oh, you know, man. I, I never sold it, but uh, I was very wow. good at it. It was the late 80s, but that's another story entirely. Wow. If you moved to Colorado, if only, if only you lived in Colorado, you could be maybe like a, a weed uh, you know, icon guy because you'd know all the ins and outs of how to grow it and how to sell it. And now that it's legal there, you could be like, you know, yeah. this kingpin. And those guys are making so much money now. They're like, uh, like really? legal, legal. I've heard they're pens. not making as much as you think because it costs so much to grow it and maintain. And then taxes are insane. Oh, are they? And so they make a lot on paper, but at the end of the day, after all the costs, mm. it's not as much as you. Th I've heard that. Not that they're complaining because they get to sure. you know be around weed all day, but I'm just saying that I've heard that the 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 people who are into it, it's it's a really tough business. I and saw this thing on Vice, uh, you know, that HBO series. Yes, I know Vice. And uh, the guy who's one of the biggest growers there was making so much money, or at least grossing so much money, Yeah, uh, he had to have a security follow him to the bank. Much like a drug cartel, which yeah. I, which I thought was interesting. He's got this caravan of, he's, he's just of taking black cash limos, to like, just taking cash, just cash. To, to the wow. to the bank. But was this in Colorado? He was, was a guy. In Colorado. Okay, yeah, but okay. but uh, wow. I, I I digress. Uh, let's let's go back uh, and talk about uh, your your childhood. What was that like? Oh. Were you my were childhood? You... What kind of podcast is this? <laughs> I just want to promote my gig at the Improv next week and get the hell out of here. My childhood. Um, it was actually a very uh, Norman Rock, if I can speak, Norman Rockwellish childhood. Uh, suburbia, uh, uh, woods to play in, a lot of neighborhood kids. We played football in the front yard and great Halloweens, great Halloweens. I remember the Halloweens the most. Our, I was in one of those neighborhoods where everyone went nuts for Halloween. So it was haunted houses everywhere and trick-or-treating and it was just the best. And white Christmases and... You know, um, so I don't have any, like, horrible complaints about, you know, aside from all the sexual abuse, but that's another sure. podcast. But, that um, was rollicking. <laughs> that was rollicking. Um, uh, no, no, no sexual abuse in case my, my mom and dad are listening. Um, no, it was just a very idyllic uh, uh, childhood. I had no... I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we get a lot of listeners who feel extra fucked up because they have the blues or they have depression and they have nothing in their life that they can point to and there's a lot yeah. of people and i think there's kind of two categories of those people i think there's people who haven't confronted something yet because something is buried or you know or they didn't realize that if not 
a subtle abuse in their household, there was indifference, which just felt normal to them. Yeah. And then there's other people where truly there there was nothing um, bad, where it was uh, truly uh, idyllic. Yeah. And I think they, I think it's important for both of those people to hear somebody else share that lack of trauma, that lack of an event to, to point to so they can know it doesn't, yeah, the past can be worth exploring, but don't wait to get some nugget, some aha nugget to try to move forward and process yeah. what you're feeling and to have empathy for yourself. You know, one thing about my childhood that I will admit to, and this is something my, my therapist and I talk about a lot, is um, I had a good friend growing up, and but he, my next door neighbor, um, but he was a year older than I was, but it doesn't matter when you're five and four. But as we went to school, my parents thought, oh, it'll be cute and Matt and his friend go to school together. So I was enrolled in kindergarten way like a year younger than I should have been. I was the youngest kid in class by far. And even the teachers were like, you know, I think you should wait a year before putting, but they're like, oh no, it'll be cute. He and his best friend next door, they want to go to school together and it'll be mm -hmm. so blah, blah, blah. And in kindergarten, I got by because I was a pretty bright kid. But by the time I got to fifth grade, it was clear that I was just, I was kind of falling behind a little bit. And the teachers and my parents had this big conference. They kind of said, hey, before we move him on to middle school, um, I think he needs to stay back here for one. I just, I think he's way too young. He's just mm -hmm. too young. He was, I think I was a year, almost a year and a half younger than everybody in my class, which is just insane. And so they decided to pull me back for a year. And that was really traumatic because I was left back, not because I was getting all Fs, not because I was a bad student, just because I was too young. And I didn't understand, I didn't, I couldn't understand that. So, so it felt like failure. The next year when all my, my, my best friend and all my friends that I'd made were going on to junior high, I was going to school at the same school as I was for another year with all these kids that I thought I was older than because they were a year young, they were a, a grade less than I was. And now they're all on my level. Mm. And this is something that my parents have always regretted because they never really explained it to me. They didn't articulate to me the reasons of why I was left behind. And it really fucked me up because I kind of lost some of the friends that I had made. My best friend and I kind of drifted apart because he began, you know, hanging out with older kids and we kind of drifted apart and I had a hard time adjusting. And that was a real significant moment in my life, I think, because uh, it just, it, it, it's made me very um, cautious about making friends. I've always been very slow about that. I, I, I'm very personable and amiable, but, you know, um, I've always been slow about making friends with people because I always have this weird feeling that they're going to leave me after a year or so, which is what happened to me, my best friend. And But a lot of my bullshit kind of goes back to that. My therapist and I have talked about it a lot. At this moment in fifth grade when I was left behind, it was a significant moment. And, you know, and I changed too because before that I was a pretty good kid. And I'll admit when I got left back, I became kind of a shithead. I, I was suspended a lot and I started getting into my, my little early 80s heavy metal scene and growing the hair long and wearing the, the jean jacket with Leonard Skinner on the back. And I was turning into that kind of kid. And I, I got suspended a couple of times. I got in trouble. Um, you know, I turned into that guy. And I think a lot of it was because I was lashing out because I was, I was embarrassed. I was hurt. I was confused. And nobody was giving me the answers, you know. And uh, so I think a lot of my stuff goes back to that. And I think that eventually as I, I got older, I think I just pushed it back. I just pushed it down. I didn't. I never really talked about it with anybody. But, but um, I think it was a significant moment. You know, were you able to make friends 
eventually in your Yeah, I was, but I was, but they were never the same kind of friends. They were people that I kind of held they were friends, but they were people that I would hold at a distance. Like for instance, I graduated high school in 1989. I don't talk to anybody, anybody from that high school. I think the year after I graduated high school, I had moved on to college and I just didn't talk to any of my friends from high school ever again. And, you know, I, I never even thought about it. I don't even like, even once, every once in a while, somebody will like send me a Facebook request. It's like some old guy from high school. I don't even like accept it. I don't, I don't want to deal with it. You know, it's just like that part of my life's over and I just move on. And it's just something that I, you know, it really just shows that I, even though I had friends after that, they were never close friends. You know, it was never a close friendship like, like me and my best friend, you know, next door neighbor had before the whole fifth grade thing happened. And so you two drifted apart. Yeah, he we drifted apart and eventually he moved. He moved about two years after um, he went ahead of me and we just never really talked again. So, yeah. Okay, Dr. Phil. Thanks. I'm, 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 I'm depressed now. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> For those of you not knowing, I'm literally crying as I'm talking right now. That he, Paul is wiping tears that are streaming down my face, and we're hugging. And uh, you know, <laughs> this is just to give you a visual of what's going on right now. <laughs> we do have moments of that. You do, the, really? You've had people cry? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. And have you ever cried? On the podcast? Oh, yeah. You have? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Who made you cry? Like, who was in here that man? I'm curious now. Um, there was an episode with Lynn Chen. Um, I was mm-hmm. going through some difficult stuff, yeah. and she was sharing some stuff that had happened to her that was similar, and um, I just uh, felt this kinship with her. Sure. And um, recovering from... You know, abuse sometimes can be really uh, nonlinear and moments will catch you off guard. Yeah. And it just caught me off guard and and I couldn't stop crying and and I just was craving a hug from her. And so I said, would it be okay with you if we paused here for a second? And I just got a hug from you because I just I just need to let these tears out because I felt like it was going to bog the the podcast down. Yeah, and um and it felt great and sure and then we were you know we picked up and we finished recording and I and I shared it with the the listeners when I did the intro yeah. to the podcast I said here's what happened and I was feeling shame about it I was feeling like I was making it all about me and. But one of the things I've realized doing this podcast is there's sometimes there's moments when you got to listen to what you're feeling. And um, it's hard to know when you're making it all about you or when you're just embracing the hurt part of your soul. Well, sometimes when you just sometimes things affect you in a certain way and you have to make it a little bit about you. I mean, after all, this is your podcast and it all kind of comes back to you eventually. You know, you're the, uh, you know, the, you're, you're the vessel of this whole thing. So if somebody says something that personally affects you, I assume your audience who's listened to you for a long time, they know what you're going through. They, they, they can probably sense that and then go, okay, she's hit on a topic that I bet, I bet Paul's, yeah. you know. I so, think the difficulty is, is when you have a negative voice in your brain that's been there your whole life is you're giving it some great ammo to say it. You know, to roll its eyes and go, oh, Jesus, here we go again. You know, wah, 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 wah. And the feedback that I've gotten from listeners um, over the three years of doing this podcast is they share that they have the same voice in their head. So that 
that kind of lets me know that, oh, this is a thing. This is one of the ways that the, the darkness presents itself is that it will tell you that you're a baby, you're an exaggerator, and you're doing this for attention. And so I try to remember that when my instinct is to is to put myself down for expressing what I'm feeling or to say, hey, I really need to talk about myself right yeah. here because I'm, um, I'm struggling. And as we all know, like you did, burying those feelings yeah it's not going to go away it's just going to come out in a different form it's my nature it's my family's nature we bury things and you're going to start and wearing a skinner jacket and that yeah, doesn't exactly. help anybody <laughs> and having a wallet with one of those chains on it you know like, oh god that was bad hey uh, uh by the way my twitter handle my twitter you follow me on twitter it's very self-deprecating and and it's i'm not gonna say it's a cry for help but it's 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 what you just said. It reminds me of what you just said. I use self-deprecating humor as a as a defense as my brand of comedy. And I hope that it's funny. I'm glad that it's funny, but it's also it's there's a little bit of truth in a lot of that stuff. What, what's I'm, your Twitter handle? Oh, it's at Puddinstrip. P u d d i n s t r i p. Puddin like a hick would spell it, right. as Eddie Pepitone would say. Um, <laughs> and uh, why but, is why is that a cry for help? Oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say cry for help, but there there are moments where I'm like I'm at home on a Saturday night, and I'm not doing anything, and I got no date, and I'm just hanging out eating you know crunch and munch and watching you know like a, an old movie and and it, i get a little sad and i start tweeting and my tweets are funny but they're also very self-deprecating yeah. they're also very self-deprecating and people retweet them and favor them a lot because it's funny but it's also like there's a little bit of truth in a there's lot a of there's a sadness there is there's and a, a, sadness, and a yeah. longing to belong yeah. or connect yeah. inside sure. there sure when you're at your darkest loneliest most negative moments if you could put aside any fear of judgment by anybody or judging by yourself what would you want to open the window and scream out to the universe putting aside judgment judgment oh. you judging yourself anybody else hearing wow. it and judging you just in an, an anonymous scream to whatever created the universe you know as an in charge of how things are I would are probably and I hope this doesn't sound, this is going to be negative. I would probably scream help because it's something I never do. I'm very inward and I'm very, I, I, I push things down. And I never, ever express myself. I, I can be kind of cold and it's something I'm not comfortable doing. And I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's the reason that my career hasn't gone where I thought it would. Because in this town, you have to be very pushy with people. And I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't come from that. I, I have a very hard time pushing myself on people and asking of favors and asking of stuff. And it's just something I've never been comfortable with. So any kind of, so I think the word help for me, it would be significant because it's something I never asked for. And, and if I could put aside all the stuff that you just talked about and able to free up, that's probably why I would, you know, this is something I've never asked anybody. It was really, really hard for me to, to ask for help. But you know, you asked for help in a way you went to, you went to therapy I was forced into that. Yeah, I was kind of. I didn't oh. want to go. Uh, my family, uh, I, I I opened up to my family a little bit about how I was feeling, and this is all. 
this all happened after a bad bike accident that I was in, um, and I, I I was recovering from it, but I wasn't recovering from it, and I just I just I was not returning phone calls. My I think I went like a month and I didn't talk to my family at all, and they were kind of like, "Is he dead? Is he like swinging from a noose in his apartment?" Or we're gonna like you know, and finally I got in touch with them, and we just had a long talk, and I kind of I think I was just so down. It was clear that I was just down that you could see it from a mile away, and we talked about it, and I, I opened up about how I was getting suicidal and blah 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 and they sort of said you need to go to therapy and you know you need to at least try at least make a try because i was at the end of my rope i think you know this was when i was 39 years old when you say bike you mean motorcycle or bicycle bicycle i was a big biker i told you earlier that i'm a big exerciser and one of the things i did was i would take these long bike trips like from my my place in hollywood i go to santa monica to manhattan beach to huntington beach i take these day trips i go to malibu i just went everywhere i loved it it was a great thing and um one morning i was on my way to uh muscle beach or something i i i, I, I used to go to venice a lot and watch them play basketball but i was going down there and i was going up santa monica boulevard on my bike and i hit a sewer grate and my tire wedged into it like so, I was going pretty fast, and you I, went over the bars. And when I went, it, my, I stopped suddenly. I went right over the bars, and I went mouth first right into the pavement of Santa Monica. And I was out for like a second and a half. And I just remember opening my eyes and seeing pavement and blood and teeth. And I was like, "Oh shit!" And I, I popped up immediately, and I was just like in a state of shock. And some guy happened to be standing there, and he's like, don't worry, I called 911. I'm like, no, I don't need 911. He goes, no, you need 911. And I looked down, and just, and just blood is just pouring out of my mouth. And um, I had severed my lip, like, down the middle and to the side, so my entire lip was, like, kind of hanging off, like, my my face. Like, you know, oh it was God. pretty bad. And uh, and I was in shock. Clearly, I was in shock, because I just didn't, I didn't know what had happened. And um, and I just stood there for a second, and uh, an ambulance came by, and they put me on the gurney and um, uh, drove me to the uh, hospital. I just remember being in the ambulance talking about football the entire time. The guy was a big Eagles fan. And he, <laughs> I had an Eagles shirt on, so he was like, we're just talking about, about like uh, Michael Vick and all that shit the whole entire time. And got to the hospital, and they stitched me up. I think it was about they, – they lost count at around 200 stitches and um, lost teeth. Um, I broke my nose. Let me see. I broke both my orbital bones. I broke my, my jaw in two places. I had a cracked skull. I had a major concussion, and I had a pinched C5 nerve down my right shoulder, which was, uh, it made my right arm pretty much numb. I couldn't use it for like a month. It was just numb. And the C5 is exactly what happened to Christopher Reeve. And the doctor who talked to me said, if you had hit with about a couple more pounds of foot pressure, you would have broken your neck. So he goes, you're very lucky to have walked away from this because I rarely see C5 you know, pinch nerve. So that doesn't also include a broken neck. So you wow. guys, you were very lucky. And, uh, and so that was bad. My, uh, my I, brother, you know, in looking at your, your face right you now, see it, yeah. I, I can't tell. I, now that you mention it, I see the scar from your lip, but when you walked yeah. up, I, I was like, Oh, this here's a the, handsome the guy did a good, handsome job. young man. Well, the guy did a good job. He's showing me up. He was, uh, he did a really good job. And, um, yeah. And I, it's kind of a Harrison Ford kind of chin scar. I kind of like it now. It's kind of, you know, masculine, I think. You know, I like it. It's kind of, I kind of dig it. It's my first cool scar. So are those all fake teeth? The, the, the whole bridge, yeah. These are, I lost my two front teeth. And so this is a bridge right here. It's mm-hmm. like, the, it's like the, the, the two teeth next to the front teeth. And the front teeth are all fake. 
but it's they welded. It's, it's welded in there. It's going to be there for the next fifty years. It's fine. Yeah. Did you have Jennifer Beals weld it? Jennifer Beals. Oh my God! Wow, I love that. Is that I like a, a thirty-year-old reference. Oh, yeah. Wait, what did I say? Footloose. What what movie no, am I thinking it was of? Flashdance. Oh, Flashdance. Why did I say Footloose? Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Ariel from. I don't know why I went there for some reason. Yeah, Flashdance. I heard oh somebody God. make a joke one time, uh, speaking of thirty-year-old references, about the movie Punchline. You ever see it? Just I've the seen most the movie Punchline uh, about comedy. Just so misrepresentative. And yeah. This, some comic had a joke. He said, uh, "Punchline is the comedy. What Flashdance is to welding." <laughs> <laughs> I love my favorite part of Punchline that among all my comic friends hate is that there's like an actual like locker room. Oh, lockers, that was the part that drove us like, all crazy. <laughs> like what? Just the hell? annoyed us to no end. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what, what what annoyed me was that Barry Sobel should be judging any sort of comedy competition. <laughs> that's that's what annoyed me the most. Um, but. But anyway, so the bike accident happened, and um, I recovered. And, and the worst part about it was the next day. See, the day it happened, it was okay because I was all morphined up, and I, was, I didn't know what I was doing. Probably in shock. And in shock, and I was just like, blah. And I woke up the next day, and I looked in the mirror, and by now my face had all puffed up, and I just looked like the elephant man. I did not recognize myself at all. And seeing the missing teeth were like really just, it's awful to see yourself with like two missing teeth. It's like, I've had those teeth my whole life and now they're just on the pavement in Santa Monica being run over by, you know, some <laughs> asshole in a fucking Hummer right now. So I was just like freaked out and I was, and, that, and, and at that point I was already kind of depressed, but this just sent me into like a really horrible depression. Did and you have health insurance? Nope. No health insurance, but I was lucky because um, because I didn't have health insurance. I wasn't working at the time. I ended up filing for something, some sort of Medicare thing, and they paid for the whole thing. Not the teeth. The teeth cost me about fifteen thousand. That all that cost about fifteen grand. But the health, everything was free. The hospital visits and all everything, that. Were, and, and it were came free. to about eighty thousand so dollars. Did all, you did you have to go to like a shitty county hospital? Or? No, I went to Cedars. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I went to Cedars, and I. And the bill started coming, and it was about 80 grand, and I was freaked out, and I applied for this thing you can do if you're, like, unemployed in California, and, like, a hardship thing, and they accepted it. And all I had to pay for was the ambulance ride, which was, like, 430-some dollars, and then the teeth. But everything else was paid for. And it was, I mean, they, they took a CAT scan on me, and it was, CAT scan's, like, $25,000. What? And it took, like, for the, for, it took about 10 seconds to do this thing. I zipped in there, quick cast again, zipped out, and that was it. Twenty-five grand. And what? Yeah, I know. It's insane. It's insane. They wanted me to spend the night, and I was like, "No, I just, I, I got to get out of here." So I just, I just took off. And I remember I threw up in my brother's car, my his, his brand new Lexus, because all the morphine. It was like, when, when you're like laying down, they shoot up all that, and when you sit up, it just gets in your stomach and it makes yeah. you really queasy. And so I'm driving home, and I just puked all over his brand new Lexus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's like, don't worry. Um, and how did how did he react? Because I know uh, he was I a know great. Pat he came it. right to yeah. uh, he came right to the hospital. He took a couple of pictures. I'll email you a couple of photos of me in the hospital. We may room. have to use that for your website. Absolutely, photo. yeah, sure. Well, I will I will email them to you as soon as this is over. Um, he snapped a couple of photos of me in the uh, in the hospital bed, and he was cool. And he took me home. Didn't did he crack didn't, any jokes? Yeah, I'm sure he did, but I, yeah. I, again, I was so morphined up, yeah. I didn't even like, you know, I don't know. I think he did a lot of like Godfather stuff. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure he did, or maybe some Goodfellas stuff. I don't know. I yeah. mean, I, I don't know, but um, I, I, I was so morphined up, I have no idea what what's going on. Sweet, I mean, sweet morphine. He could have brought Weird Al Yankovic with him, and I wouldn't have even remembered it. Yeah. It was just so messed up. 
And so, uh, so yeah, so the next morning I wake up and my face is like, you know, Quasimodo. Oh. And I just, and I just, and it was one of those um, concussions where if, if I laid back to sleep, the whole room would start spinning. So oh, I had my to like, God. I had to kind of do things slowly. If I wanted to lay down, I had to kind of go slowly. Otherwise, I'd start, I'd pass out. And was anybody staying with you? No, I was by myself. I, my brother. Was that safe? Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? He checked in on me, but he went to the store and got me a bunch of soups and puddings and jellos and Is stuff. Is that where pudding came from? Yeah, no, it's not, but uh, yeah. it's not. But uh, yeah, that, that's funny that you mentioned that, but it's not. Because I couldn't chew anything, so I just I just drank a lot of soup and ate a lot of jello for the next month, and it was uh, bad. Um, the worst part of it was, you know, I, I obviously I just was in a... My my life was just you know in turmoil at this point, the lowest I've ever been, and I'd forgotten that I had had a meeting with um, Jimmy Kimmel to write on a show, the Jimmy Kimmel show, like like three weeks after the accident. I kind of forgot about it, and uh, the the day before the accident, the, the meeting, his assistant calls me to like remind me, hey, you have a meeting with Jimmy tomorrow, and I'm like, oh, that's right, and I thought to myself, okay, this is good. This is good. I'm going to go to this meeting, and, and just being around funny people is going to make me feel terrific, and I'm going to get my mojo back, and I'm going to get a job on a show. And, it's, and I went into this interview, it was, and I went to Jimmy Kimmel's office, and I, I've never felt so just awful. I, I looked like I probably wanted to cry. Like, I just was so depressed. All these bills are coming in. <laughs> And I'm just like so fucking sad. And I walk into his office and he's in there looking at photos of Cuba Gooding Jr. naked. I guess he had posted some like naked photos of himself on the internet. And he was looking at these photos like laughing and having a good time. And I'm just like, I'm trying to be funny and be personable like my normal self. And I'm just failing miserably. And we just sit across from each other. And I, I told him about the accident and the medical. And I'm, I'm sure I was, it was, I felt like a make-a-wish kid. Like, you know, I just was this yeah. horribly depressed guy seeing and I'm, I'm, and I'm trying to like impress him with my jokes and get a job writing. And, and it was just so sad. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, and I just couldn't get into the meeting, and and I could tell he just, I don't know, it just wasn't going very well. So it it ended after about ten minutes, and I just like got the fuck out of there, and it was awful. It was really not good, you know. It's 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 kind of like somebody tells you you have cancer, and then you go to Disneyland the next, the very next day with your family and trying to be all funny, you know. It's just like what a great you what wanted a, to stay home and just like be, you know. What a great <laughs> analogy for it. I was just emailing somebody the other day that when you're around happy people yeah. and you're experiencing depression, it feels like your your face is trying to bench press 500 pounds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I've brought you to this Chuck E. Cheese to tell you that you have full-blown AIDS. Uh, now, let's get, uh, you know, it's like this the worst the worst place I possibly could have been. And it just reminds you, too, how how much you feel like society has left you in its dust. Oh, God. I mean, if, if I was in my normal state of, of, of joy, I don't even know joy, but I would have been so funny with Jimmy Kimmel. I would have laughed at the, at the naked Cuba Gooding. I would have had some good anecdotes and blah, blah. But instead, all I did was just complain about my my mouth and how much pain I was in and and I'm sure he could just see the weight of sadness on me I'm sure he could just see it yeah it was obvious so (laughs) and as much as he wanted to be around that 12 hours a day he chose not to I think I don't want this guy coming here uh, you know just sitting in a corner by himself crying and while he's supposed to be writing you know Justin Bieber jokes for me Uh, I think I'm gonna pass on this guy so literally a sack of sad a sack of sad uh, so what was there an arc to it? At, at what point did you begin to get out of it? Once you started there was no going to real therapy? arc to it. I think the I guess I guess the bottom was not even Jimmy 
Kimmel. The bottom was afterwards. I went home and I pretty much just disappeared. After what? After Jimmy Kimmel. After after I failed miserably okay. meeting with him, I went home and I pretty much just disappeared for a couple of months. I didn't return phone calls. I didn't return emails. I didn't. I just was like a non-person. And finally, it was my family who kept. I think they were getting very worried about me because I just wasn't reaching out to them at all. And uh, and finally, I my brother kind of confronted me a little bit and said, "Hey, what's going on?" And I explained to him that I was just. I just. I feel lost and hopeless, and I'm depressed. And it's just. It's the depression is just. It's won. It, it won the war. Basically, it's not. I'm not in a war with depression. It won the war. Okay? Did you? Did you want to not live? Oh yeah! I did was, you were every you, day? I was thinking about suicide every day. I thought about ways to do it. I thought all I could do was lay in bed and just think about how much better off if I just killed myself every and, day. It was bad. And what was keeping you from actually doing it? Uh, honestly, because I I could never go through with it because I have too much love for my family, and I think that killing yourself is the most selfish, worst thing you can do to your family, especially if they have real love for you back. That was something I, I learned. I, I sort of, I don't know how I just, I, I put it together myself. I just felt like if I just killed myself at 40 and leaving my mom and my dad, and my brother to grieve, it would just be the worst, the worst thing I, I would, it would have ruined their lives. It would ruin their lives. And I couldn't do that. I can't do that. So as much as I talk about it, as much as I talk the game, I, I would never do it. You know? But thinking about it, and it's still, I still just think thinking about it is still a horrible place to be. If your life is that bad that you're seriously contemplating suicide, it's a it's it's a time to get help. And so, uh, with the help of my brother and my parents, they sort of pushed me into getting a therapist, and I started talking to him. And it was tough at first because I didn't think it was going to work. I didn't think that just chatting with a guy about you know shit was going to work. I didn't see it. Um, did you dread going to therapy? I did. I did. Cause I didn't want to. I, I, I was the one thing about, I'll tell you about depression is after a while it becomes comfortable and you like being depressed because at least you know who you are and where you are and what you're feeling, you know, and how the day is going to go. Exactly. It's and, very predictable. And, and you, you find this, your little pockets of there's comfort. There's a sense it. of control in depression because it makes you feel okay about sitting at home all day watching TV, lying in bed till noon, you know, watching old movies until dawn. It makes you feel like, okay about <laughs> you it. You just described my life. Jesus. <laughs> I go to bed at 5 and I get up at 12.30. Yeah, really? Do you like watch TCM? Are you a big TCM watcher? Documentaries on Netflix. But I got up today oh, at 1 o'clock. documentaries. Oh. got up today at 1 o'clock. Really? Yeah, that's, that's normally I get up at 12.30 or 1 o'clock. Okay. But go ahead. I got up today at 6.30, went to the gym. Oh, uh, then went for a run. You. I know. Fuck me. Totally. <laughs> fuck me. Totally. Then got, then got home was watching a little bit of the Dirty Dozen before I came here. So not a bad morning. Um, but, but getting getting back to it. So uh, you, you started um, going to the therapist. You didn't think it going was to going therapist, to help. And he immediately wanted to put me on Lexapro. And I fought that. I didn't want I, didn't, I felt like it was just like uh, I, my, my life is so bad that what is some fucking pill going to do? What's that going to do? And finally, after about three or four weeks, he finally talked me into it. I started taking it. And um, so was he a psychiatrist? He's a psychiatrist. Oh, okay. Did I say therapist? I, yeah. I the same thing. I don't even know. No, I don't a know. therapist generally refers to uh, somebody who does talk therapy, but um, doesn't have a medical degree. Oh, okay. This guy's a psychiatrist. Yes. Okay. Okay. My, my bad. My bad mm-hmm. terminology. Yeah. But then he prescribed Lexapro and I began taking it and um, slowly... But surely it started to work, and I wasn't not depressed, 
but I wasn't at the bottom of the of the abyss anymore. I was still you the know, lows weren't as low. The lows weren't as low. And I'll say one thing about what can I ask what you take? I'm curious what you I take uh, Lamictal, Selexa, and Buspar. Okay. I just take Lexaparo and I usually take it at night because it helps me sleep. And one of the pro- my my biggest problems with depression before this was I had horrible insomnia. Horrible insomnia. And so I do like a nine thirty Lexapro melatonin cocktail. And I'm telling you, it really helps me get down because one of my biggest problems is, I don't know I'm sure you have the same thing is I just my, my, my head goes I think and I think and I think and I'll lie in bed all night long just thinking of shit and thinking and thinking and thinking and I won't be able to drift off and the Lexapro helps stop that helps slow that down so I can focus on just being and hearing birds chirp or hearing the wind and I can go off and, and, and go to sleep so that's that was the biggest I guess advantage positive to the Lex Pro. Wasn't that I was feeling any better, but I was sleeping much better. And that was a significant thing in my life. That definitely helps. You that know, they really say, helps. They I mean, say, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the acronym HALT, but hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are like the three or the four biggest triggers that can uh, yeah. send us into a spiral. Ugh. And if you can try to deal with those things up front yeah um or at least recognize okay that's what's going on here that's why mm-hmm. i'm snapping or i'm thinking about suicide you know what can i do to yeah alleviate and the, that? the insomnia was really just destroying my life i mean I, I would be up till five six in the morning and then i'd sleep till one or two the next day and i'm like i can't get my day going because you just you can't get your sleep cycle going and, you can, and you're missing appointments and you're you don't want to hang out with anybody because you're just exhausted and you just can't get your day going you know mm-hmm. and so it's it's awful so that was the one blessing about Lexapro is that it helped me sleep. Yeah. And then, you know, I think eventually uh, the, the, I, I increased the dose a couple times. He told me to and the talking and it, it got me feeling a little bit better. And uh, yeah. So uh, let's let's take a little pause here and uh, give some love to our sponsors. Uh, one of our sponsors is Bulu Box and uh, grateful for how many episodes of this show they've uh, they've sponsored. Um, Bulu Box, uh, which is spelled B-U-L-U, B-O-X dot com, is a uh, it's a service that sends uh, monthly boxes for uh, vitamins, supplements, nutritional products for you uh, to try that uh, that are right for you and your body. Um, it's $10 a month. That includes free shipping. And if you use our offer code, you get your first box absolutely free. Um, so you would go to booloobox.com, click on the microphone in the upper left-hand corner, because uh, we're a podcast, and then uh, you would enter the pro- promo code Happy Hour. And um, some of the stuff that I've had uh, that, they, that they carry that I love are the... Um, the Promax Low Sugar Protein Bar, great thing to have in the in the car uh, when you're getting hungry. Because I don't know about you, but when I eat anything with sugar in it on an empty stomach, I feel great for about 10 minutes and then I need to take a nap. And the other thing they have is a protein powder that is awesome called Hemp Force Choco Maca. Uh, it's a hemp protein superfood that you can make a smoothie out of. Uh, but they have literally... Uh, dozens and dozens if not hundreds of of products for you to uh sample and choose from and uh yeah check it out bulubox.com promo code happy hour want to also give some love to squarespace um i don't i think i've mentioned on the podcast before the um well squarespace is uh it's a website design uh service and you 
basically you design your own website using templates that they have. It's drag and drop. It's super easy. It's um, you can start with no uh, no credit card um, a trial and uh, you can build a website, see if you like it, and then you can decide if you want to pay eight bucks a month for your site to go live, which is what I did because I thought if I'm going to talk about this product, I should I should try it, and it was super simple. I decided I was going to post uh, a website of dog pictures that I've taken because that was a crazy hobby of mine for uh, for a number of years, and so I posted my favorite um, dog pictures and made a website. And uh, the address for it, if you want to go check them out, is paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. And uh, I've gotten a lot of really nice feedback from it. And it couldn't have been easier to put that site together. It took me less than an hour. And uh, it's just a great product. They have really good customer support. Um, The website that you design uh, adapts to whatever uh, type of media people are looking at it on. So if they're looking at it on a phone, it will adjust its size to fit the phone. If they're looking at it on an iPad, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, it's great. They also have an online store available. Um, So yeah, check it out. Go to squarespace.com and um, use the offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. Uh, thank you, Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace, better webs. <laughs> I was going so so well. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Do you so, remember a moment when you kind of uh, metaphorically felt the sun come out? I really don't. I think that it was a very slow, gradual. There wasn't a eureka moment where I was like, "I'm feeling." It wasn't like that. I just, I think it slowly, gradually. It made me face the day with a little bit more confidence so I could get up and do things and, you know, and put myself out there a little bit more. It just gives me a, a little bit of confidence. And my self-esteem, don't get me, it's very low, don't get me wrong, but it's the little bit of confidence that it gave me. I was able to get out and go to the gym and meet people and actually be a somewhat social, you know. And there's a momentum to recovery, just like there's a momentum to depression that sure. they can feed on each other. And I always encourage people, you know, take that little baby step towards yeah. something to, to recover, and you'll eventually begin to get some positive feedback from that, be it you won't feel as low or whatever, yeah. and that'll make it easier to, to make that next appointment or to go to the gym the next time or to eat something instead of shitty junk food. Yeah. Did you have, like, a eureka moment, or was it for you was the same, sort of a gradual, like, you just, you sort of... You know, kind of slowly come out of it, and you just the, the first moment that I felt like, oh, maybe something was wrong with me. Um, that was biological. Was the first time I went on meds. It was before I ever confronted my drinking or anything like that. Um, it was in uh, two thousand, and it was the first uh, the psychiatrist had prescribed serzone for me, and it takes about four or five weeks to to kick in. And I was very cynical that anything was going to work. Yeah. And I was on the road and I was watching TV in the comedy condo. And it was some MTV reality show about people that were trying to become professional wrestlers. I watched that. Okay. Yeah. And there Tough was. Enough. Yeah. I know the show. And this guy <laughs> was, there was something just kind of inherently lovable and ridiculous about this guy. And I remember laughing out loud and I went, oh my God, I can't even remember the last time I felt that, that, that giggled, that yeah. I giggled. 
Yeah. And that was that was kind of a eureka moment for me and it was so small but it made me realize that oh this is what normal people do this is what they get to experience every day yeah and it felt really good cuz i was like maybe there's hope for me maybe i can be the type of person that that giggles yeah just can enjoy a moment of levity yeah and it, it, it can be the most idiotic insane moment but it's just it's a moment of levity and you realize that that's really what, you know, you look for, I guess. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that meds gives me is it gives me a chance to be quote-unquote normal. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think that meds make you euphoric, and that is not the case no. uh, at, at all. Um, they think it's cheating. No, it's just, it's like insulin for a diabetic. It just gives yeah. you a chance to... Yeah to be on equal footing with yeah. uh, somebody that doesn't. That's what I feel about Lexpro. It's not, it doesn't make me happy. It just makes me, you know, being, be capable of being happy, you know? Yeah, you and still got to do the other stuff. I still got to do the, I, I still got to meet, I still meet, meet the world halfway, but at least yeah. I have a fighting chance this time. Yeah. And it's, and it comes and goes. There are days when I'm still down, but that's, you know, but not as many, not as many. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's nice to, this sounds ridiculously, understated but it's nice not to think about suicide all the time it's a it's yeah. a it's what a, I, what I, a waste I, of mental energy oh to, to be thinking about that every day but when you're yeah. in that place wishing it away doesn't do anything and there i i will be honest i'm not saying that i've turned to go i still sometimes have those lows when i'm sitting in my apartment and it's 9 p.m on a saturday and i'm like what the fuck i'm not doing anything and it's i'll start going there a little bit but I won't go there long, and uh, I'll, I'll I I may may take to Twitter and laugh it off with a dumb you know self deprecating joke, which is good I think and healthy. Mm -hmm. But um, so I don't want you to think that I'm totally like not thinking about putting my head in the noose. But mm -hmm. um, you know, but um, let's, let's talk about social media for a second. Um, sure, I think we don't talk about that enough. I get these feelings sometimes when. You know, it's one in the morning, and my usual cocktail of documentaries or reading surveys or I whatever. do the documentaries too, by the way. I do that a lot too. Oh, it's I, the love, best. I could watch documentaries it's like a hug, like twenty four seven. Like a warm blanket. So yeah, yeah. When those aren't working and the emptiness is really gnawing at me, and I don't want to engage in stuff that's you know compulsive, like looking at, at pornography or something. Um, I'll, I'll go on Twitter or Facebook and I'll, and I'll post something, but it feels like it almost makes the emptiness worse because I feel a certain, cause then I feel like I'm depressed and I'm an exhibitionist and <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. That's, that's a, yeah. What do you, what, what are your thoughts, uh, on that? Do you ever get sated? By going on there, Twitter is like being a, fla a a sadness flasher. It's like showing people you're sad, you know, flashing them. You know, it's really what it's like. It's um, um, I, I think that the thing about me, I've been on Twitter for a couple of years, and I think people that follow me know that all my jokes are inward and that they're self-deprecating and they come from a place of loneliness because 
my Twitter account is based on Puddin, which was that daily web series I did with Eddie Pepitone, which was very dark and very lonely and very suicidal. I mean, anything coming from Eddie Pepitone is, is lonely and suicidal, <laughs> let's face it. But um, So people were used to that humor. And I just and since we stopped doing Pudding, <clears throat> and I've just taken over the, the Twitter handle, I just do my own stuff, it's, it's just stayed that in that arena. So people are used to it. So, um, which is why I don't tweet a lot of stuff about, you know, politics or current events. Every once in a while I will, but usually it's just like, you know, just me, me sitting here in my apartment at midnight thinking about, you know, why I exist, that kind of stuff. But Jer- it's always jerking off to Sylvia Plath. Jerk, how dare you? How did you know that, by the way? Did you have it written down somewhere? Well, she was bent over with Plath? her head in the oven. <laughs> oh, God. That's, oh, the... that's right. That's right. Wow. What a way to go that is, huh? <laughs> Rear ending Sylvia Plath while she's uh, choking on fumes. All right. But um, <laughs> Dr. Phil would have the guts to cover this stuff. What do you. Um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, but, but all my Twitter humor is. It's self-deprecating, and it, and it comes from that place. But is it exhibitionist? I don't know, because everyone I think that I follow, usually people that I follow on Twitter are fellow comics, and most comics tweet depressing stuff because it's mm-hmm. just it's their nature, I think. And so it, 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 it doesn't feel like I'm being an exhibitionist. It feels like mm-hmm. I'm just being honest, you know? The worst thing about Twitter is there are people who clearly are leading good, well-adjusted lives, and they have a lot of industry heat on them and they have a house and they have a wife and they're doing very well financially yet they're still tweeting about oh i'm eating i'm eating arby's at two in the morning i'm like no you're not you're just saying that because you want people to think you're that guy that those are the people that i'll unfollow you know after a while but it's 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 the people that i follow on twitter are usually the honest ones i can tell are truly in a certain amount of despair and they're using comedy as a way to and I admire that, and I, I, I usually follow people who are like that. You know, my my feeling, because uh, I, I think it's a healthy way to do. It. I think it's it's yes. healthier to do that than it is to just sit in your apartment writing a, a, a twenty page diary in in your own blood, you know, <laughs> about how sad you are, or uh, tweeting about your cats or something. It's like I want to hear, you know, that you use use your humor to combat the depression. That's that's pretty gutsy. I like I, that. I've I've discovered that. It's okay for me to do that stuff as long as that's not the sole way that I'm expressing what I'm feeling, that it's okay to do it in addition to talking to my friends in support groups, going yeah. to therapy, you know, doing all the all the other stuff that I have to do on a daily basis. Then it's sure. okay, but I find if I'm slacking off on those things and I'm trying to connect through uh, solely through Twitter or Facebook that it just makes the emptiness worse for me because it's it's a pseudo connection as opposed it to... It definitely is. Yeah. It definitely is. I mean, and I think you have more outlets though than I do. You have a podcast. You said you had a group thing you do. For me, it's I don't have a podcast. I, don't, I mean, it's, it's really just Twitter and Facebook and that's pretty much it. And I don't have like... I don't have a ton of friends. I have a couple, but I don't have, I don't have like tons and tons of friends and I'm not going to bars and opening up to... You know, about my life to some girl in a black miniskirt, you know, drinking skinny vodka, you know, so it's just just not like that. Are there any... Skinny uh, girl vodka. I want to apologize for Bethany for uh, not using the girl in her her brand. That's Bethany. She she has the skinny girl uh, line. Yeah, she's she's this woman who somehow has been able to 
build this giant brand of vodka off of of her ridiculous reality TV show. Well, career. it's brilliant combining it's the popularity of alcoholism with anorexia. Yeah, exactly. She's been able to you know capture that market. Yeah, you know, that's a great demographic to have, I guess. You know. Jen Kirkman had a really funny tweet where she said, uh, I salute necrophiliacs for efficiently combining the things we think about every three minutes. Makes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm kind of yeah. paraphrasing it. But, yeah. um, there was a thought that I had. Oh, uh, I was asking, are there any uh, behaviors that uh, feel addictive or compulsive uh, to you, yeah. that you sometimes? Am I working out? I think it's compulsive, and I yeah. think I feel like if if I don't work out on a day, if I don't work out in the morning, I usually feel like shit during that whole day. I feel guilty, and I feel like I feel like fat, and I just feel like I I should have done something. You know, it working out for me is um, it's very important because again, it chases the blues away, but it's it's just something that I I need. I need to sweat every day in some way. Well, it's something that I do. But you know that, what? Of that, all the compulsions that, that are out there, that's not a bad that, one to have. Is that? Is no. that not healthy though? I mean, do you push yourself to the point of vomiting or No, but I push okay. my I mean, I'll go to the I'll go to Griffith Park on an August afternoon when it's 120 degrees out there and I will run for 10 5 miles and I don't care. I just will go. I don't have any water with me. I'll just go. I don't you don't care. Um so I think it's is it unhealthy No, because I'm in very good shape. And so I I don't feel at all unsafe about going it's out there. It's not coming from a place of punishing. It's coming from a it, place of wanting to feel I, better. I think it's definitely the pun but it's a good punishment. There's nothing better I think and more euphoric than after you've completed a really heavy hard run or workout and there's that moment when you're in your apartment after you've showered and you're just kind of laying there and you feel so euphoric. It's and it's energized. a thousand it's, times it's a thousand times more of a better feeling than Lexapro or any antidepressant could ever do. What would the, f- the difference be between pushing yourself as an athlete and punishing yourself as somebody who is battling a sickness? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just I bet there was. Out. I bet there have been times when I punished myself physically because I was in a horrible place and I didn't feel like I deserved any sort of, um, you know... I guess I, I, I didn't feel like my body deserved uh, um, being taken care of, so I wanted to break it down a little bit and showed who's boss. So I would go out and do horribly long runs and lift way too much weight and do things just to punish it, to make it hurt a little bit, just to, just to feel some pain, feel something. But um, I, I don't think I did that a lot. I think I think mainly my, my exercising is to get that euphoric feeling. At we the should end. mention, too, that you work out with a ball gag. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> With a ball gag, and you have yeah. the, you have the gimp spot you. <laughs> I am led around by a collar and leash, uh, yeah. walking around, yeah. yelling out "Mommy, Mommy!" as I run through Griffith Park. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> we'll say that for our second podcast, for yeah. part two of the podcast. You know, <laughs> is there is there anything else that you'd like to uh, share? Any seminal moments? I mean, you've sh- certainly shared. I uh, think the being held back and the bike accident are really two very. Th- seminal moments in my life that I've not shared with anybody. So those are the two things though. Are you disappointed? Do you think you're hoping I had more? No. Okay. No, I like <laughs> I I the the one thing I fear this podcast becoming is um for lack of a better analogy, but it Jerry Springer like in oh, okay. in that that it's not about how dramatic somebody's story is. Um but I also know sometimes that they're 
that there's some com- something really compelling about the dramatic story. So I certainly love those when I get one that is like that. But the reason I started this podcast is to help people feel less alone and see all the camouflage that the darkness presents itself in. Sure. Um, so if I can have somebody like you come and share a story where it's not the typical my uncle f- fucked me, my dad told me I was a piece of shit, I got pushed down the stairs. Yeah. If I can take a break from those stories and have somebody whose struggle is every bit as real, but it comes from something different. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I love that. So it's, it's, it's great. I'm glad, I'm glad that your story isn't, um, a cliche in a lot of ways, a cliche cliche, in a lot of ways, but you you know, I, I don't want to put down the people that have those stories. I just, worry sometimes about the the show becoming repetitive or um, stereo stereotyped i don't think it is because i think i think everyone you talk to eventually i mean i think i just think they're all going to have their own ways of arriving at that sad place you know everyone has a different route that they took mm-hmm. I, i've listened to a lot of your podcasts and rarely have i heard the same stories it's like depression's like a snowflake you know it's like everybody is just different getting to theirs you know Absolutely, and I, that was I, really nice. By the way, I, depression is like a snowflake. Oh, I agree. I'm gonna put that on a Hallmark card. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just want to say again to to anybody out there that doesn't have something in their in their life that they can that they can point to to explain why they're feeling the way they're feeling. It's okay. It doesn't it doesn't matter. That's not important. Yeah. Give give weight to what it is that you're feeling and open that window and, and don't ask, jump though. Ask for help. Don't, <laughs> I thought that's jump. where you were going for a what, second. Yeah. <laughs> open that window. He told me to just go open the window. I live on an eighteenth floor. Fling your and worthless I ass. In three months, you son of a Oh God. Um is and sometimes I think parental indifference can be Something yeah. that can be every bit as damaging as uh, overt uh, abuse, Absolutely. and that's one of the most difficult things to uh, for people to identify. Um, but even if there's nothing, even if there was parental support, and and there's still that stuff, um, just keep just keep moving forward and and reaching out and asking for help because we're we're not going to have Epiphany sitting in the lazy boy watching yeah. a Law and Order marathon. Are you plagiarizing one of Jerry Springer's final thoughts? Because that sounds very familiar. That I sounds am. like I, I feel like you're you're doing something that I've heard before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I, I a, hope not, because I've lost all respect for you. If you and know. I'm about to have the audience start uh, <laughs> booing, throwing at you chairs, and, yelling. and uh, you know, and somebody's going to attack you, and then a big overweight guard, a security <laughs> guard, is going to intercept them, and we're going to cut to a commercial. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> See Kyle. Uh, white white power. <laughs> no. Matt, uh, thank you so much for coming in uh, and sharing your life. I really thank appreciate you for it. having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Many many thanks to to Matt. I really really enjoyed talking to him. Um, before we take it out with some surveys and emails, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. Go to the website uh, mentalpod.com and uh, mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at if you're on Twitter. 
Uh, but go to metalpod.com and uh, you can make either a one-time PayPal donation, um, which I love, uh, or a recurring monthly donation, which I really love because uh, it, it provides some financial footing to keep the uh, the show going. And we can always use more uh, more donors because people do drop off from the from the show. They either get burnt out uh, from my bullshit uh, or they, you know, for whatever reason, um, people do stray away from the show and they stop donating and so it's kind of like this thing that we constantly need um people to replace those that uh that stop donating so um it's super easy go to the website and uh you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month and um you don't have to worry about it unless you decide you want to cancel or your credit card expires and it's super simple to to do either of those uh you can also support us um by shopping at amazon through our search portal it's on our homepage right hand side about halfway down and uh, just make sure your ad blocker um isn't isn't on because it might not show up if your ad, bl- ad blocker is is engaged um and you can support us non-financially by going to itunes writing something nice about us giving us a good rating uh that that boosts our ranking and brings more people to the show because when we do show up on itunes uh front page um we get more listeners so it kind of feeds on itself um it's kind of like the good Ebola. Yeah, that's the that's the analogy I was looking for. Um, and you can support us non-financially by um, spreading the word through social media. I, I really, uh, really appreciate those of you that, that do that. That's a big part of um, keeping the listenership um, sustained. Enough of my yakking. Let's get to you guys. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Zork. 8871 and his awfulsome moment is and for those of you that are new to the show an awfulsome moment is a moment that was awful at the time but in hindsight has an element that's kind of awesome or at least darkly funny to it um this is kind of a light one but uh, i met my current girlfriend when we were both 16 and hit it off pretty quickly i was over to her house one day and feeling hungry so i decided to order a stuffed crust pizza from pizza hut i had almost i love how he described what the pizza was. Uh, uh, I had almost enough cash to pay for it, but was $2 short. I remember seeing a $2 bill in a jar on my girlfriend's bookshelf. What possessed me to use it on the pizza order, I do not know, but in the end, I paid for it and quickly forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, my girlfriend's grandfather, who had been ill for many years at that point, passed away. After the funeral, we went over to her house again, and she started to show me some relics he had bequeathed her. She swore he had given her a $2 bill that she had stashed in a jar on her bookshelf. I confessed. To this day, I feel she has not really forgiven me, though we were able to kind of laugh about it when it comes up from time to time. (laughs) Oh, I love that. This is an email I got from uh, a woman who wants to be called. uh, She says, you can refer to me as this isn't an emergency, but... Uh, because she says that gets, she's a 911 dispatcher, and she says that gets said on 911 all the time. And her email says, uh, Hi, Paul, I'm a newish listener. Started listening after I heard first heard you on uh, Crab Feast. That's, um, that is uh, the podcast that um, my guest, uh, Ryan uh, Sickler, uh, co-hosts. And she writes, I need a bit of help. I'm a police dispatcher in my hometown. 
for about five months and I'm having a hard time dealing with some of the stress. As terrible as some of the 911 calls can be, I've taught myself how to handle those, but I can't seem to handle the radio traffic. When it gets busy or there's a, quote, hot call, or if someone gets in a pursuit, I freeze. I imagine it's similar to a panic attack. My hands start to violently shake, I can't breathe, and I start to break down. It sounds like a panic attack to me. Can you point me in the direction as to what I might be able to do to keep keep um, me calm when things go crazy? What do people do during panic attacks? I need to keep myself together because I like my job. As frustrating as it can be, I like being able to help people in this way. Are there any episodes with a dispatcher I might be able to steer myself to? I, I haven't done one with a dispatcher, uh, but I would love to. Um, I have done one um, with a policeman. It's called uh, Policeman Andy. Um, anyways, uh, I wrote her back and I said, thank you so much for your email. I can't imagine how hard it must be to have a panic attack on a job like that. Um, since your questions feel like they should be addressed by someone with more expertise than me, I'm going to CC, um, a couple of people. And the first, um, therapist uh, that got back to me was, uh, Erica Holmes, who was a, a guest. We had a couple of episodes back and she writes, um, First thing is to recognize it as a panic attack and label it as such. Panic attacks are scary, but they aren't dangerous. Panic attacks gain momentum when experienced as dangerous themselves, i.e. I'm losing control, I can't breathe, I'm having a heart attack, etc. Panic attacks suck, but they aren't dangerous. I know I'm repeating, but it bears repeating. During a panic attack, best to breathe deeply into the belly, feel feet on ground, look around and notice safe environment, remind self uh, you're safe, and panic attack will be over soon. I do some self-talk and validate the stress of the job, and oh, I do some self-talk and validate the stress of the job, and remind myself I'm I'm safe. I was just thinking how ironic that would be if, while having a client pour their guts out to her, she had a panic attack. <laughs> she just stands up and starts breathing deeply, feeling her feet on the ground. Go ahead, continue talk about your childhood trauma. I'm just going to breathe deeply. Um. She also writes, maybe talk to coworkers about how they deal. Maybe some visualization of self being calm and confident at work. Also, some acceptance around stress of job and limits of ability to help everyone or control others um, slash prevent tragedy, etc. This is where a therapist could be helpful as there may be deeper issues at play. It's a process. Nothing will help overnight. But repeat exposure to stress and mindfulness uh, that she's safe will help. Thank you so much for that, Erica. And uh, uh, um, the woman wrote me back, and she thought that that stuff was very, very helpful. I love that when I'm able to uh, give somebody a little something. Kind of like the, the the Italian guys in the casinos in the 50s. They'd roll up a $5 bill and go get yourself a little something nice. This is an awfulsome moment. We had a nice uh, nice flood of awfulsome moments uh, filled out this last week. Made me very, very happy. Um, I was on Cara Sant- uh, Santa Maria's podcast, and I think I did a call to action for people to fill out happy moments and awfulsome moments. Anyways, this one was filled out by Mary, and she writes, My mother was in bed dying. She had maybe a day or two to live and was comfortably sleeping most of the time with morphine injections. I was planning her coffin. 
I had arranged for lots of her favorite newspapers and a shredder uh, for a soft blanket and a soft blanket for her to lie on. Friends were writing notes and collecting pictures to be put in with her. I was to put the coffin in the back of my station wagon and drive her to the crematorium a certain number of hours after her death. So the coffin had to fit her body and my car. I've never heard of somebody driving the coffin themselves, but maybe that's done in, in smaller towns or something. Um, or it's kind of a do-it-yourself thing. Anyway, finally she was deeply asleep uh, as I pulled out my sewing tape and measured her dimensions. I was at her shoulders when she popped open her eyes, looked me square in the eye and said, measuring me for my coffin? I froze, not quite knowing the proper response and feeling if I didn't move, maybe I was invisible. A couple of seconds later, she closed her eyes and went back to her drugged sleep. For your information, I did have to put a pillow under her knees to make her a little shorter to fit the coffin to fit the car. I'm sure she had a comfy ride. And yes, she was in the house for a day after her death, so lots of time to, quote, talk and adjust to the fact that I no longer had a mom. We were very close. I moved in with her for for the last one and a half years, and it was the best thing I've ever done. She talked about all kinds of things. She remembered her childhood. She told her secrets. We laughed and cried. It was a sacred time. Paul, my mom is not your mom. You are doing the right thing with your mom. I totally support you. Lots of love. Thank you for that. Um, This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Mega Man. And uh, he writes, oh, no, I'm sorry. This is a woman who calls herself Mega Man. And she writes, "Uh, I once let a man pay me for sex, or at least I thought that's what I was agreeing to. He took me to a hotel, and while he was nice and tried to make me feel comfortable, I didn't feel comfortable at all. He had me get naked and on all fours, and he started sticking his dick between my butt crack, like having it jack him off. He did this for a few minutes and then came on my back. I was so confused, and then he said, I forgot a condom, and then he gave me $200. I'm not even going to comment on that one. There's some that just speak for itself. This is a um, being hospitalized survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Kim. And uh, the reason she was hospitalized, when I was 19, I became addicted to Adderall and after, after several months of addiction, had a psychotic episode. After weeks in the hospital, I became so depressed that I started taking Adderall again, became, a psych- became psychotic a second time and was hospitalized for weeks again. How was your experience? It was horrifying. No one tried to talk to me or understand my delusions. I didn't understand where I was or what was wrong with me. I thought I was going to be trapped forever. I thought I had contracted a lethal STD from a guy that raped me months before the first hospitalization and that that was why I was going crazy and being quarantined. They had to give me a shot in my ass as a sedative the first night and I thought I was being euthanized. At 19, I had never heard of mania and no one explained to me that I was manic for the weeks I spent in the hospital the first time. I was treated like an idiot when in fact I'm very bright. I have two master's degrees and teach humanities and philosophy courses at the college level. I remember my parents brought pictures of me and my family to put in my room and the nurses gathered around and looked at them without bothering to ask me who the pictures were of, etc. They were fascinated to see what I was like when I wasn't, quote, crazy. I overheard the nurses complaining that my parents were annoying them with questions about me all the time. 
I got fed up and called my parents and told them that the nurses are a bunch of assholes who think I'm a non-human animal. They were shocked and then told me I must be depressed and asked the doctor to put me on an antidepressant as well. I was so heavily medicated, I remember my eyes would shake and seizure, but I didn't tell anyone because I thought I was there to die anyways and that the seizures were just a new stage in my lethal STD. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. Thank you for that, Kim. This is a awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Neglected Pocket Pussy. That's right. I love the names you guys come up with. He writes, and this is uh, more of an awful, awfulsome day than an awfulsome moment. And he writes, it was a sunny day, so I decided to wear uh, loose joggies and a t-shirt. Um, when I got outside, I realized it was chilly, but decided against putting a jacket on. Anyway, I had an anxiety attack in the lecture lecture theater at college and had to walk from the top and back of the lecture theater down to the front, passing about 150 students and the lecturer, who I blatantly ignored when he called me uh, to ask where I was going. I walked straight outside and noticed the sun was gone and moments later it started to rain. Now, wishing I'd worn my jacket and having decided it was too shit of a day and too awkward to go back to class, I went to therapy a few hours early and just waited outside the building. Whilst waiting there, I, I love anybody who uses the word whilst i think he's english whilst waiting there i got drenched in water by a bus which drove through a huge puddle at the side of the road i slowly slid down onto the ground soaking wet alone cold tired and hungry i had no money other than the money to pay my therapist and there were no buildings nearby that i could just sit in to wait about 30 minutes before therapy was due to begin, the police arrived and told me to get up and leave the area, insisting I was making the place looking dirty. So I got up and off I went. I finally came back and went into the building, still soaked to the bone and shaking from the cold. Uh, he writes a minus five Celsius. Yeah, so I'm sure it's it's uh, probably either Canada or... <sighs> like I'm doing detective work about where this is from as if, as if it has any bearing on this. Anyway, we do need to, to know where the word whilst comes from. Uh, I bumped into my therapist at the elevator. We got on the lift together. Yes, of course he's English. Uh, and it was I'm annoying myself. We got on the lift together and it was slightly awkward since I didn't know what to talk to her about other than doctor-patient talk. To make matters worse, and you won't believe this, the elevator broke between floors. So there I am, cold, wet, hungry, uncomfortable, claustrophobic, and stuck in an elevator having my weekly hour therapy session with my shrink. At the end of the session, which was actually 90 minutes due to being stuck so long, she didn't take my money. So I went and bought a huge triple bacon and cheeseburger with fries and a Coke and went to the cinema to see a movie called Side Effects. Got some popcorn, enjoyed the rest of the week. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Doug. And he writes, while trying, not whilst, while trying to find the right meds for my OCD slash depression, we discovered that when I take Zoloft, I react in what's called dystonia, which is an uncontrollable convulsing. It's essentially restless legs all over my body. It was horrible. I would flop around on the ground, sometimes getting rug burns on my forehead. I remember... I'm sure that a lot of people believe you. When you how'd you get the rug burn on your forehead? Uh, dystonia. Oh, yeah. Is that is that his name? Uh, because of the dystonia, I had to miss over a month of work. So for the months of June and July, I stayed home with my wife. 
The moments I wasn't shaking were great. We just sat there watching terrible movies and TV. I fell in love with her even more. It's the longest we were together without being apart. I have since had my meds change and everything is good now. But I thank the Zoloft and Dystonia for giving me and my wife a summer vacation-ish. Thank you for that. Uh, and then I wanted to read this email because uh, I feel like it's a good follow-up to that. Um, this is from a guy who uh, refers to himself as Bart. And he sent me this email. Uh, Dear Paul, after listening to the latest episode of your podcast with Aparna Nanshurla, I felt like I wanted to ask you something. Is there any chance you could talk a little bit more about medication and what it does exactly? Maybe with a psychiatrist who can talk about the exact workings of the different medications and what this means for a person in daily life. But also with some guests who have taken medication and could maybe shed some more light on what the differences before and after were and what changed for them. As someone who is in the process of deciding, I have in the past talked about that with, um, but maybe not as in depth. And I um, was supposed to record a psychiatrist uh, to come on and talk about um, areas that psychiatrists work in that therapists don't because they don't have an MD. But um, his schedule changed and we weren't able to do it. Continuing, as someone who was in the process of deciding whether I should start taking Lexapro for my anxiety and depression issues, I would very much like to hear from people who have used meds and benefited from it clearly. Um, and then he just kind of, kind of goes on to, to um, talk about how scared he is and he's afraid that, um, he, for instance, he writes, um, Aparna uh, mentioned her using Lexapro, but then continue to talk about all the issues she's still struggling with. Uh, and then that becomes part of my inner monologue about how it's only a temporary numbing of the problems like the other drugs are. Um, and, you know, to that, I, uh, I say that meds don't fix us, but meds give us a chance um, to heal. They, because for some of us, if there's an underlying chemical uh, imbalance, for lack of a, uh, of a better word, um, Healing is almost impossible, um, but oftentimes there's a chemical imbalance and there's a trauma or a lack of coping mechanism. So it, it dissatisfaction, unhappiness, anxiety, all of these things need to be handled on multi-tiered fronts, and um, meds are just one of them. They don't make you happy. They give you a chance to be happy, and... Um, as, as Matt said in this episode, it gives him the, the vigor to get out and face the world. So, um, And it's a hit and miss thing. Every person reacts a little bit differently to meds. So you, you might have a bad reaction to it, but the good news is you can stop if you choose to. And hopefully you'll have a good shrink that will welcome your feedback and be accessible and um, easy to, to, to talk to. I hope that helped. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Linz. L-I-N-D-S. And she writes, With today being the anniversary of 9-11, I was reflecting on where I was when the planes hit 13 years ago. I was a junior in high school, and I was at home with my mom getting ready for school and work. We always watched the Today Show. So we saw the TV coverage from the first moment, and were standing aghast when we watched the second plane hit in real time. The Today Show immediately started replaying the impact of the second plane. But in her shock, my mom thought each replay was a new plane. She was counting and becoming more hysterical with each replay. A third just hit. A fourth. A fifth. Six planes. 
She got to seven before I started laughing and pointed out it was the same plane. It was an awful event and a surreal day, but I always appreciated the quick moment that she gave us to step back from the intensity. I usually feel like an awful person for having a small chuckle over such a horrific event. So thanks for at least giving the sentimental, uh, the sentiment a cool name. That... Uh, I hate laughing at anything that is 9-11 really related, but that is clearly not related at, you know, not pointed at the victims. Um, I have a friend who was so addicted to having sex with his girlfriend and so afraid that she was not going to have sex with him on any given day. He woke up on the morning of 9-11. He went out to get some cigarettes. When he was at the convenience store, he saw on the TV what happened. And he knew when he went back, if he told his girlfriend what had happened, she obviously wouldn't feel like having sex. And so he pretended it didn't happen. And when it came on the news, he had to pretend like he saw it for the first time, which ironically was then done in uh, an episode of, uh, of Mad Men. Um, so maybe he's not the first person that's, uh, that's done something like that, but uh, he was pretty ashamed. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by um, a woman who calls herself darkly optimistic. And she writes, when my ex-husband and I were first living together in our very early 20s and poor, I made him a big sand candle for his birthday. I'd never heard of a sand candle. Uh, a few nights later, in an effort to be romantic after a fight we had, he lit the candle on his nightstand and we began to have makeup sex. The problem with sand candles, especially homemade ones, is they are often not perfectly flat on the bottom. Mine was rather rounded. As we were really getting into it in his, uh, into his bed, um, as we were really getting into it, his bed, which was a mattress on box springs on the floor, started to rhythmically bump into the nightstand, and this made the sand candle start rocking, unbeknownst to us. Not whilst. Uh, right as I started to achieve orgasm, I opened my eyes and saw that he'd gotten too close to the rocking candle and his mid-back length curly hair had caught fire. As you can imagine, I screamed in a panic. I couldn't get the words out to tell him what was the matter for what seemed like forever. Although I was terrified and very worried about him, I was also in the throes of an orgasm. And the fear and excitement of that moment somehow intensified my orgasm. I just couldn't talk. I finally got out the words, your hair, it's on fire, which for some really bizarre reason made him very angry at me, but made him just fuck me even harder while growling and slapping his hair out. It was simultaneously the most intensely thrilling and upsetting slash confusing sexual experience I have ever had. As soon as we had both came or come, a whole new argument started over my overreaction to opening my eyes with seeing the man who was fucking me with his hair on fire. As pissed off and hurt as I was about his anger with my reaction, the only thing I could really think about was how fucking amazing the resulting orgasm had been. You can't make that shit up. That is great. Uh, and then finally, this is just a sweet little sublime happy moment from a guy who calls himself Cleveland Dave. And I, I know some of you guys have submitted happy moments that are kind of bigger and more dr dramatic, but for some reason the ones that really touch me are the ones um, that are more sublime and subtle. And I think the reason I like these more is because 
they are more indicative when I experience them that I'm in a good place. And so that's why they they resonate so so deeply with with me when I read one. And he writes, um, it was a cool night at the end of summer this year, and I decided to take one of my dogs for a walk. As my 70-pound lab, Hunter started barking from sheer happiness and jumping on anything that would hold his weight and some things that wouldn't, I noticed that my other lab, Coco, who was 16 years old, had gotten herself up to see what all the commotion was. Although she couldn't see or hear well, she put together that I was taking the other dog for a walk, and with what little energy she had, she too started barking at me, begging me to take her as well. Feeling awful, knowing that Coco couldn't walk very well anymore, I decided to load both dogs up into the car and take them to a park a few blocks away. I let the dogs out and the younger one bounded out, running through the field, exploring what he could explore, sniffing what he could sniff and rolling in whatever gross stuff he found to roll in. I walked slowly so Coco could keep keep up with me and she found a tree on a hill that seemed that she seemed to like and plopped herself down under it. I sat there as the last light was leaving the sky and the lightning bugs were coming out and watching my two greatest friends experience two separate things. One, running around, taking in everything he could, eating the fireflies, running in circles and barking at his own shadow, while the other just content to lay under a tree as I rubbed her ears. It was a wonderful evening, just spent at the park, hanging out with my two puppies. Ah, love that. Love that. Want to also remind you, if you're going to be in the L.A. area, um, September 26th, that's a week from uh, tonight, uh, I'm doing a live taping of the podcast at L.A. PodFest. Um, I record at uh, 7 o'clock that night, and it's uh, PodFest is at the uh, Hotel Sofitel in uh, West Hollywood. And I believe weekend passes are still available for that. And if you don't aren't going to be in the L.A. area, you can still watch it um, because they're going to video stream it. And passes uh, are 25 bucks to see any video uh, of any podcast being recorded. And there's going to be dozens recorded that weekend. And um, you can watch it up to three weeks, either watch it live or uh, up to three weeks after it records. And you get five bucks off the pass if you enter the offer code Gilmartin when you purchase it. And the link to go to purchase that is LAPodfest.com slash live. And again, use the uh, the offer code Gilmartin and you get five bucks off that 25 bucks. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm My guest is Laura House, who's a funny, sweet person and uh, has a lot of experience with uh, meditation, not only doing it, but also teaching it. And uh I think we're going to get into that, hopefully in a way that isn't uh, isn't too dry, um, and because uh, I know meditation is not the most exciting thing to talk about. But um, anyway, I'm really looking forward to re- to re- recording her and doing podfest and meeting you guys, seeing you in person. Um, it's always nice to connect with the uh, the listeners um, or the little people, as I call them, when I walk around and uh, have my butler bring me things. Anyway, I hope. Uh, I hope tonight's episode um, gave you something, maybe comfort, maybe insight, maybe uh, maybe just a distraction from something you don't want to feel or think about. I know for me, that's a lot of times what I look for is something to just take me, take me away. Um, and I hope if you're been having trouble asking for help, I hope tonight's episode brought you a little closer to being able to to reach out for help and um just know that you're not alone 
and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.